Father in heaven, we thank you so much for tonight. And God, we know that these are very special times that we're living in. And you want us to have faith and confidence in your word. Because that's the only thing that can guide us. And Lord Jesus, we pray and ask for the Spirit to give us wisdom. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Well, you know what's very interesting? I was actually reading a, a very uh, wonderful article. It was found in MSNBC. And it was about three Japanese, three Japanese tourists who ended up in some water. Did anybody read that article? Okay, so this is what took place. They were touring America, and they got a GPS. And they were following the GPS, except they ended up near the coast. And they continued to follow the GPS into water. And until the point where they could no longer drive the car. So they actually got off a, a, a boat ramp and can, continued in the water. And uh, they ended up being there. And they said this, well, if the car was made in Japan, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> but you know what's very interesting about that? Is that even with the GPS, you need some common sense, right? You need some common sense. Here's the thing to understand, folks. Don't miss this point. Without the Holy Spirit, we can understand God's word. Without the Holy Spirit, we're going to end up in some far-off places, places we should not be. We need the Spirit of God. And I praise God for that verse in John chapter 16 where Jesus says, When He, the Spirit of truth, shall come, He will guide you to all truth. We need to trust the Spirit of God that He'll guide us in the Scriptures. Amen? Amen. 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 Well, are you guys excited about the message tomorrow? Is there a message tomorrow? Yes. yes, there is a message tomorrow. That's exactly it. There is a message tomorrow. Remember, there, is mes there's messages. there are messages Tuesday and Wednesdays, but Thursdays are off nights. Amen? Amen? Thursdays are off nights. Thursday is off, so you can get just all the stuff prepared for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, okay? Well, there's also one more thing I'm going to mention to you, and that is if you have questions... And some of the things we're covering don't make sense. Don't just walk away because just one thing can be corrected and you'll see the consistency of the truth of the scriptures. All you need to do, if you see that green box right there, Lisa, do you mind holding up that green box? That's our question. Okay, there you go. There's our question and answer box. If you have some questions, feel free to write them down and just put them in that box right afterwards. And starting tomorrow, we're going to start answering a few questions before we begin the presentation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, tonight's message is entitled, Prophecy's Answer to the Skeptics. Prophecy's Answer to the Skeptics. The thing that we get to, when we, as we continue in this Bible study, is that we begin to understand that God's Word can be trusted. God's Word is clear. God's Word is accurate. God's Word is relevant. And God's Word is sufficient. Can you say amen to that? And regardless of what your past experience has been with the scriptures, God is calling you to have a brand new experience in the word of God. Amen? Because this is the only thing that's going to get us home. Amen? The B-I-B-L-E, right? The basic instructions before leaving earth, right? We're going to need God's word. God left the word for us so that we might have a guide and the Holy Spirit to direct us in understanding this light. Amen? All right. Anthony Flew. Does anybody know who Anthony Flew is? Okay, well, Anthony Flew is considered, he was considered one of the greatest atheists at one time. He died about two years ago. 
But this man, you can see some of his debates on YouTube. You can read some of his books. He debated some of the top Christian apologists. This individual was a renowned atheist philosopher. He had several degrees, and he was bent on proving that there is no God. Something remarkable took place in 2006. Something very remarkable. This man became a believer in God. It shocked the entire atheist world. The, the skeptics went nuts with one of their champions actually went over to the other side. He actually wrote a book called There Is a God. How the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. And praise the Lord he changed his mind because he died just a few years ago. He wrote... The most impressive arguments for God's existence were those that are supported by recent scientific discoveries. And that the argument to intelligent design, also called the ID, is enormously stronger than it was when I first met it. And what is awesome is that there are several interviews with this atheist, or this former atheist, excuse me, where he describes the journey that he was on in discovering the truth. And as he began to, began to look out into the universe and to the galaxy and begin to study what science was opening up, he became convinced that there absolutely 100% had to be a God. And so he renounced his former thinking and joined the theologians. He joined the deists. He joined the theists and says, there is a God. You know what's very interesting? The Bible tells us in Psalms 19 that the heavens declare the what? The glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. When you study the heavens, when you study the stars, when you study the universe, you begin to understand that there is a creator. Most cosmetologists, excuse me, cosmologists, <laughs> cosmologists, Individuals who study cause and effects into the universe and astronomy and astrophysics will tell you there are very little atheists in that department. And the reason why is as they look out into the galaxy and see the orchestra, which is the universe, they become convinced that there absolutely 100% has to be a creator. That's so remarkable about that. But folks, we don't need to just look at God's universe to see that there is a God. What we can do is we can look out into the world, into culture, into art, and we can discover God's existence. Now, one of the great things about studying the things that the Lord has opened up to us is that we can verify the existence of Jesus. Amen? Jesus was a real man who lived. He was a real individual and just looking at not just biblical evidence, but extra biblical evidence, you can see that history confirms what the Bible was talking about. Flavius Josephus, although there's a lot of people who argue it about what he wrote about Jesus, they will not argue what he said about Jesus' existence. He wrote this, At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. He wrote this about 50, 60 years after the time of Christ. Now, why is that remarkable? That would be like us writing about something, let's say, Ronald Reagan. 
No one denies the existence of Ronald Reagan. No one denies the fact that he was president at one time. So when Josephus was talking about Jesus, it was still news. It was still front page news. And what was taking place was that the early church began to expand rapidly. Here we can see, not written by a Christian, but by an extra biblical source, a Jewish historian who is well recognized by many secular historians as being legitimate. Here he is, he is talking about Jesus. Tacitus, he was a Roman historian. He also described the church early on. And look what he says. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Here you can see even extra-biblical sources confirm what the Bible was talking about. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? Amen. Pliny the Younger, he also wrote, they, the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. And when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds. And actually the quote goes on and says, not to commit adultery, not to steal. In fact, it was actually listing off the Ten Commandments. Even the Roman historians, even individuals who wanted nothing to do with Christianity were talking about the effect that Christianity had in the early world. Can you say amen to that? So when someone says to you, there was nobody such as Jesus, folks, all you need to do is just point them to the historians who were living at that time. Amen? We actually have more evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ than we do for uh, Julius Caesar, for Alexander the Great, and no one will deny their existence. Thallius, he actually wrote this. This is very, very remarkable. He was actually describing the events that were taking place when Jesus was crucified. But he was describing them not from somebody who was there at the cross, but somebody who was around in the vicinity. And watch what he said. On the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. Do you know when they placed this quote? It was a time when Jesus was dying on that cross. Even the world, or even the people who were off, not in that same city, were recognizing something was happening with the weather, something was happening with the world, and they recognized that something supernatural was happening. They actually wrote down the record of the events of that day. Praise the Lord. God preserves the history of his son. Can you say amen to that? This man, Peter Stoner, actually, he was an individual who was a math teacher, and what he wanted to prove was something very interesting to his students. But he wrote this quote, Any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved, more perhaps, proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. He had a very interesting experiment. What he did is that he took some of the prophecies found in Scripture, I believe just about eight of them, 
And what he said is, what would be the probability of one man just fulfilling eight of the prophecies? And by the way, there are about almost 2,000 prophecies that point to Jesus Christ. But he said this to his classroom, let's just take eight of those prophecies and let's see what would be the probability of one man fulfilling just eight. And what they discovered was that the probabilities of a man fulfilling eight of the prophecies is one in ten to the seventeenth power. I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce what that looks like. Okay? I talked to one of my friends who's a math teacher in Delano, California, and I said to him, he teaches at a college, and I said, what does that number look like, that probability look like? And he says, let me tell you what that probability looks like. It's zero. It's beyond zero. It does not exist. Folks, praise the Lord. Jesus was who he said he was. Amen? Amen. When Jesus Christ fulfilled those prophecies, he was fulfilling the scriptural identity of the Messiah, something nobody else could do. You know, I was reading a very interesting story about a man who actually betrayed America during the Cold War. And what he did is he actually deferred over to the Russian side and he met some of the Russian cohorts, some indivi interesting individuals from the military, and he was betraying America with some secrets. And so the plan was to meet this Russian individual in South America, and there would be several signs to identify each other. So in their communication, the Russians told the individual, we want six specific signs. What you're going to do is you're going to come to one of our offices, and you're going to sign your name in a certain way. And after that, you're going to walk in front of the beautiful statue that's in the middle of the city, and you're going to be out there with a guidebook. And with that guidebook, you're going to take your middle finger and you're going to place it in one of the pages. And when you do that, you're gonna, someone's going to come up to you. They're going to ask you a certain question and you're going to reply like this. And there was about six signs. This was a true story. Six signs. And what happened? Sure enough, this individual fulfilled each one of these six signs. And so the deal took place. And it was a betrayal in American history. But folks, if it takes six signs just to prove that this individual is who he says he was, Jesus Christ went even further and he says, look, I'll give you 2,000 prophecies and you're going to know who I am. Can you say amen to that? God doesn't just give us six. He doesn't just give us 10. He doesn't give us 15. He doesn't give us 20. He gives us 2,000 prophecies that lock in and prove without a shadow of a doubt who he says he was. Can you say amen to that? Now, this actually, they actually tested this out and said, what would that look like? And they found that if you take all of Texas, remember these are just eight prophecies, if you were just to take all of Texas, the big entire state of Texas, and then take silver dollars and fill the entire state of Texas with silver dollars up to two feet high, and then you take one silver dollar that's marked what would be the chances of finding that Mark Silver dollar in all of Texas on your first try? That would be the probability of Jesus just fulfilling, or any man just fulfilling, eight of those prophecies. Folks, you can see that Bible prophecy points out very clearly who Jesus was. Can you say amen to that? He was the Son of God. He was the Son of God. He is who he says he was. Now, there's something very interesting. There's a remarkable prophecy 
This prophecy is so interesting, it is so powerful, that a lot of the Jewish rabbis and a lot of Jewish scholars after the time of Christ begin to actually pronounce curses. Pronounce what? Curses. curses. They actually pronounce curses upon anybody who would study a certain portion of the book of Daniel. If they studied this portion of the book of Daniel, they would be cursed. And one of the reasons why the Jewish people were making the threat at that time, why these scholars were making that threat, because they could see from Bible prophecy that it was clearly identifying Jesus as the Messiah. And here are some of the curses. May they drop dead who try to figure out the end. For they, the sages say, since the time of his Messiah's coming has already of yet arrived, yet he did not come, therefore he will not come at all. That was Sanhedrin 97b. Watch this one. Similarly, one should not try to calculate the appointed time. Our sages declare, may the spirits of those who attempt to calculate the final time, that's from the book of Daniel, of the Messiah's coming, expire. Rather, one should await and believe in the general conception of the matter as we have explained. I want you to notice something about some of these curses. They're telling everybody, they're telling the people, hey, look, you don't need to study this out for yourself. Just trust what we're saying. Do you have a problem with that? I do. Folks, God gave us his word to study it out for ourselves. Amen? Like Martin Luther, we should say that our conscience is chained to the scriptures. Amen? I follow the word of God. I don't follow any man except for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now watch this curse. May the bones of the hands and the bones of the fingers decay and decompose of him who turns the pages of the book of Daniel to find out the time of Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 and may his memory rot from the face of the earth forever. Tonight, folks, we're going to look at that prophecy. Can you say amen to that? Folks, God doesn't just give us his word just to hide it from us. Amen? He doesn't just give his word so that we may not go to that. He put the prophecy in there so that we would discover without a doubt who Jesus really was. Can you say amen to that? And you're going to see from these same passages, Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27, Jesus is who he says he was. And folks, at the very end of this Bible study, you're going to have no doubt that Jesus really was the Son of God. Can you say amen to that? All right. I hope no one's fingers rot in the process. What did Daniel know? What did Daniel know? Everybody take your Bible and let's go to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. We're going to take a good look at this prophecy that was cursed by many rabbis. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to Daniel chapter 9, starting with verse 20. Now, what's so awesome about the book of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel here is praying for his people. His people are in captivity because of their sins. Babylon has broken down the defenses of Israel and has taken captive and just utterly annihilated Israel. And so Daniel is praying for his people. He's praying that God would forgive their sins. He's praying that God would forgive his sins. And so what happens in the midst of that prayer? The angel Gabriel appears to him. Who appears to Daniel? Gabriel. Gabriel, that's exactly right. Let's start with verse 20. Daniel chapter 9, starting with verse 20. Now we're going to start speeding it up a little bit, okay? 
So make sure you're holding on. All right. Daniel chapter 9, starting with verse 20. Now watch what the Bible says. Now while I was speaking, praying, confessing my sins and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, what? Gabriel, whom I had seen in vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening, evening offering. And he informed me and said and talked to me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, you are greatly what? Beloved. Right. You know what's very interesting about this? There's only another person in Scripture who is called beloved. Do you know who it is? It is John. Now, you know why that's very interesting? You have this. You have Daniel, who's called the Beloved, and now you have John, who's called the Beloved. Daniel wrote the book of Daniel, and John wrote the book of Revelation. Two books about prophecy. God calls to the authors. He tells them, you are loved. You know why? Because people are searching out. These individuals are searching out what God's will is, and God is pleased when that takes place. Can you say amen to that? God is pleased with you. The fact that you're here today and you're trying to understand, Lord, what is it that you want me to understand about who you are? God is pleased by that. Amen? Well, let's continue going. Let's find out what this prophecy is. Verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the what? Vision. Now watch this. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. How many weeks? Seventy weeks. So I want you to pay attention to this, okay? This prophecy is called the 70 weeks prophecy. The 70 what? Weak prophecy. The 70 weeks prophecy. This was the prophecy that pinpoints the Messiah, that pinpoints Jesus, that was cursed by those Jewish rabbis. 70 weeks are determined for your people. Okay, now why is this very interesting? This is very interesting because what God is saying to Daniel right now is this. You are praying for me. You are praying to me about your people. But Daniel, I have to tell you something. Your people have been in idolatry. Your people have continued to reject me. You take a good look in the Old, Old Testament and you will discover over and over again, God was working with Israel, but they kept falling into idolatry. They kept turning away from God. They kept backsliding to the point where God says, all right, you want idolatry? I'll give you the land of idolatry. And sure enough, Babylon came over the land of idolatry, the epicenter of idolatry, and took over Israel. And so Daniel is praying and he is saying, God, give us one more chance. Give us more time. And so God says to Daniel, all right, I'm going to give you 70 weeks. How many weeks? 70 weeks. And therefore, your people for your holy city. And he says, during these 70 weeks, these things are going to be accomplished. Number one, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Don't forget that last one. To anoint the most holy. So God gives Daniel the 70-week prophecy, and he says, during this 70-week prophecy, I'm going to give this time to your people, but during this time, I'm going to accomplish a lot of things. 
And he says, these are the things you can read about in that verse, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, reconciliation for iniquity, that's just another word for sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And you're going to discover what that is. All right? So Daniel is thinking to himself, okay, I can't wait to understand when this prophecy starts and how this prophecy ends. So God tells Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Now, in Bible prophecy, there's a very interesting principle. Don't lose me right here. It's just very simple. In Bible prophecy, a day equals one year. A day equals what? One year. Now, people get confused when they're studying the scriptures. They said, when is it time for me to take a day and make it a year? Well, the way you know it's time to interpret Bible prophecy just like that is very simple. It is only when prophecy is being spoken. I want to say that one more time. It is only when prophecy is being spoken that it's time for us to take this symbol and make it happen. So in Bible prophecy, one day equals what? One year. Okay, now let's do a little bit of math, okay? Don't, don't lose me here, okay? What does two weeks look like in the amount of days? How many days is two weeks? Now, in Bible prophecy, how many years would be two weeks? Fourteen years. Okay, a day equals a year in Bible prophecy. Are we all on the same page so far? Okay, very good. So three weeks. How many days is three weeks? I wish a little bit more people said something. 21 days. Okay, so in Bible prophecy, how many years would be 21 days? Oh, wonderful. You guys got this. Okay, so if it's a 70-week prophecy, how many days would be 70 weeks? 490. 70 times 7 is 490. Okay, so now we're understanding something about this prophecy, and you're going to see it come together. This prophecy is a prophecy for 490 years. Are we all on the same page so far? Remember, in Bible prophecy, a day equals a year, okay? I want you to see this one more time, okay? A 70-week prophecy is going to be 490 years. And you're going to see how exact, how precise this is, okay? Now watch this. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Gabriel continues speaking to Daniel, and look what he says. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, there we have the starting point. Okay, now I want you to pay attention. I'm going to go very slow right now, okay? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there's going to be a total of 69 weeks, okay? So there you have it right there, okay? I want you to see the starting point. Know therefore and understand from the going forth to restore and to... To, to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay, so there we have the starting point. So when the command goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, all the way to when the Messiah shows up, there would be exactly 69 weeks. Okay, is that pretty simple so far, yes or no? 
Okay, very good. I have to explain over again because you're going to see the beauty of this, okay? But pay attention. You're looking at Scripture. You're going to see how perfect this is. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah should show up. What Daniel is hearing is the exact time the Messiah would show up. Okay, and it would start off first with the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So when did that take place? That took place under Artaxerxes' reign when that took place was 457 B.C. 457 B.C. And you can find that decree actually in Ezra chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. Okay, now we have a starting point. 457 B.C. The Israelites were still under the domain of Babylon, but Babylon lost its power to the Medes and the Persians. So this pagan king decides one day, I'm going to let the Israelites go home. And so what he does, he sends the Israelites out. He says, you can go home and you can rebuild your city. And that took place in 457 B.C. Okay, now we have a starting point. So when did this command go out? 457 B.C. This is extremely important, and scholars are in agreement on this. 457 B.C., okay? So now we see where Daniel is leading to. But wait a minute. We were told that there would be 69 weeks or 483 years till the Messiah would show up. And sure enough, on time, sure enough, exactly 483 years later, from 457 B.C., the Messiah shows up, 27 A.D., A.D. 27, the Messiah is baptized. On time, exactly 483, 69 prophetic weeks later, the Messiah is baptized. Now, what do you mean by this? You're going to see the evidence for yourself. Remember one of the things that God would accomplish during the 70-week prophecy? He would anoint the most holy. Watch what Jesus says when he is baptized. Do you remember that moment when Jesus, John is baptizing him? And Jesus says, no, no, no. What Jesus says, actually, you can baptize me. And John's like, no, no, no. And Jesus says, no, it's important. Now watch what Jesus says. He is not speaking an enigmatic language. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill what? All righteousness. You know what he was telling John the Baptist as John the Baptist was standing before him? He was telling John the Baptist, John the Baptist, it's important you baptize me because we're fulfilling prophecy. John the Baptist actually paid, played a part in fulfilling Bible prophecy when he baptized Jesus. And that took place exactly A.D. 27, 483 years, 69 prophetic weeks, exactly what Daniel was told. Even when Jesus began his ministry, right after he was baptized, pay attention to what he's saying. He says, the time is what? Fulfilled. You know what he was telling everybody? He was saying, Daniel's time is fulfilled. The step in the 69 weeks has just been fulfilled. Bible prophecy is taking place. And guess what? The Jews of that time actually were studying out the book of Daniel. They were devouring the book of Daniel. They knew the Messiah was supposed to be showing up around that time. And so when Jesus is baptized on time prophetically, he says, guess what? Time is fulfilled. And that was his message right after he was baptized. Even in Acts chapter 10, verses 37 to 38, Watch what Peter is saying, beginning in Galilee and after the baptism that John preached, 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him in A.D. 27, and he began his powerful ministry. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, right after his baptism, he's in a synagogue, and look what he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has, what? Anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Remember part of the 70-week prophecy? God says he would anoint the most holy. And sure enough, when Jesus was baptized, he was anointed with the Spirit of God. Okay, there we have it right there. We're going to see the 70-week prophecy. I want you to see how clear this is. 457 B.C., remember what Daniel was told? From the going forth to rebuild and restore Jerusalem all the way to Messiah the Prince, there would be 69 weeks. And sure enough, exactly, precisely, 457 B.C., all the way to A.D. 27, it took place exactly 69 weeks, 483 years. Bible prophecy was fulfilled. Can you say amen to that? But folks, this isn't the 69-week prophecy. This is the what prophecy? 70-week prophecy. Wait a second. There's one week missing. But watch this. Gabriel continues speaking to Daniel about what will take place last during that prophetic last seven years. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Watch this. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be what? Cut off. Now, that's in a very important word, cut off, because it's the Hebrew word karat, which simply means to receive a divine penalty. The Messiah would be karat or receive the divine penalty, but not for himself. Then he will confirm the covenant with many for when? For one week, but in the middle of the week, he would bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And sure enough, what took place in that last prophetic week, exactly three and a half years later, from the time that Jesus was baptized, Jesus was crucified. And when he was crucified, the temple veil ripped, and that's an end to all those sacrifices and oblations. Folks, we don't need to go to a temple to talk to God. Amen? We can go straight to Jesus and through Jesus, we have access to the Father. Can you say amen to that? Jesus was baptized in the autumn of A.D. 27 and was crucified exactly in the spring of A.D. 31, three and a half years later. Okay, and let's take a look what that looks like. But I'm going to just show you Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 again. But in the middle week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And remember the temple veil ripped when Jesus was crucified when he died, signaling an end to the Mosaic system. Folks, we don't have to go again to any temple. We don't have to bring a lamb. Our lamb of God was already crucified for us. Can you say amen to that? But in the middle of the week, the Bible says he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and he did that. Okay, now let's take a good look at this. 457 B.C., all the way, exactly 69 weeks, A.D. 27, he was baptized. Then three and a half years later, in the middle of that last prophetic week, he made an end to sacrifices. He was cut off. But wait a second. There's just the last three and a half years left of that final week. How does the 70-week prophecy end? How does the 70-week prophecy end? Now pay attention what God is telling Daniel. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your what? Your holy city. God was telling Daniel, look, I'm going to give your people one last probation time, and it's going to be 490 years. And by the way, one day Peter came up to Jesus, and he says, how many times must I forgive my brother? 
Seven times? Do you remember what Jesus told Peter? Not seven times, but 70 times seven. And how many is that? How much is that? That's exactly 490 times. That was the time that God allowed it, the people of Israel, right after their, their disobedience over and over again. God says to them, I'm going to give you one last 490 years, and it is during that time that these things are going to take place. So 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to anoint the most holy. That took place when Jesus was baptized, to seal up vision and prophecy, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Those things took place at the cross, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to make an end of sins, and to finish the transgression. All those things took place. But wait a second, what happened in A.D. 34? Just hold on a second. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21. Take your Bible. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21. I want you to see how God has dealt with the Israelites over and over again. Matthew chapter 21. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. That's page 957. Matthew 21, starting with verse 33. Now this is shortly before Jesus is about to be crucified. So you can imagine his language is getting stronger to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees. The same people that praised him one day would be responsible for crucifying him another day. Jesus knew their hearts. So look what he says in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and sent a hedge around it. He dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Then he leased it to a vine dresser and went into a far country. And when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that he might receive his fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And again he sent another, he sent another, excuse me, I lost my place, verse 36. Again he sent, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Verse 37, then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. So Jesus says, gives this parable where he describes this man who had this vineyard, who leased it out to his servants, and the man says, I'm going away for a far country. I'm going to send some people to you shortly to find out what's going on. So he sends his servants out to them, and sure enough, they get angry, and they killed one servant. They stoned another. They robbed another. And finally, the master is thinking to himself, something's going on over there. So he says, I'm going to send my son. They'll respect my son. And sure enough, when the son gets there, what do they do to the son? They kill him. And what was Jesus describing? Jesus was describing throughout the entire Old Testament when God sent his prophets to Israel. He sent one prophet and they stoned a prophet. He sent another prophet. They sawed one prophet in half. Isaiah the prophet was sawed in half. They sent other prophets. They robbed them. They did all sorts of things to those prophets. God was trying to wake up his people out of their condition and he was trying to save them from their sins but they kept rejecting the mercy of God. Finally, God sent his son and you know what they do to his son? They crucify him. The very people Jesus came to save, they crucified him. Now watch what the question, watch the question Jesus asked the Pharisees. Verse 40. Therefore, what will, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Pay attention to verse 41. Then he said to them, then they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. They answer the question. And lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. 
And you know what Jesus begins to describe in the next passage? He begins to tell him, have you ever heard of the stone that the builders rejected? He said, that's me. You're about to crucify me. And all the Pharisees and Sadducees were like, no way. They were trying to cover up what they were doing. But inside their hearts, they were already scheming to put to death the Son of God. You see, over and over again, God was pleading with Israel. Even on that cross when he was dying, he said, Father, forgive them. But Israel, his chosen people, from the very beginning, from the line of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham, from the descendants of, of, of uh, Isaac and Jacob that were in Egypt, from those people over and over again, God pleaded with the Israelites and he says, how can I give you up? You know, there comes a time, there comes a time where even, where I am going to go as far as to say this, where even God has no choice but to step back. Now you're thinking to yourself, absolutely not, that's impossible. You know why it's not Impossible because God respects choice. God will never put you in heaven against your will. He will never put you in heaven against your will. Can you say amen to that? But the Israelites chose over and over again. You can read about it throughout the entire Old Testament. They run back to their idolatry. They run back to those other gods. They say, we don't want any god. They even told Pontius Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. They outrightly object or rejected Jesus. And even Jesus, right before he was about to be crucified, walked near a fig tree. And that fig tree was representing Israel. And he says, you're never going to bear fruit again. You're never going to bear fruit again. Seventy weeks, 70 prophetic weeks, 490 years, God pleaded with Israel as a nation. He pleaded with them to return, to return over and over again. He even wept over Jerusalem. The God of heaven and earth actually shed tears for Israel because they rejected him and they were going to be lost. They were going to be lost. Folks, God doesn't want anybody lost, amen? The Bible says in 2 Peter, he's not willing that any should perish. Guess what? I'm about to tell you something right now. God actually wants you in heaven. Do you believe that? Like God actually wants you in heaven. I'm going to go a step further. God actually wants you in heaven more than you want to be in heaven. Because you have no idea what heaven's all about. But God says, I can't wait for them to be there. God is waiting for that moment. Amen? But over and over again, he was pleading with Israel. What took place after the time that Jesus was crucified? Exactly three and a half years later, the first Christian martyr was stoned. The first Christian martyr was stoned in Acts chapter 7. For those three and a half years, right after the crucifixion of Jesus, God continued pleading with Israel. He sent the disciples and he says, I want you to continue working in this area. And for three and a half years, the disciples continued working. And in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is brought before the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, even Saul was there, they stoned him. They stoned him. But what's remarkable, if you read Acts chapter 7, right before Stephen is about to be stoned, he begins giving this ultra Bible study, you can call it, for about two chapters. He starts describing the history of Israel. Now, why is he doing that? You'll understand in just a bit. So right before the Israelites, right before the Pharisees and Sadducees, right before this probation is about to close for this nation, Stephen begins giving this long Bible study talking about the very alpha of Israelite history all the way to the omega of Israelite history. 
Why is he doing this? Because any time a prophet was about to die, he would recite Israel's history. You can read about it. Moses did it. Joshua did it. Prophets did it throughout the entire Old Testament. They would recite the history of Israel's uh, of defiance and rebellion. And what they were doing, they were showing the contract. And so what God was doing through Stephen, he was showing the contract to the Israelites. I have pleaded with you over and over again. And finally Stephen says, when they had picked up those stones, you reject the Holy Spirit. And they picked up their stones and they stoned him. The 70 weeks came to an end. As Stephen was being stoned, what did he look up and what did he see? He saw Jesus not just sitting at the right hand, but standing at the right hand. When the man, when the judge is standing up, that is meaning case closed. And sure enough, as Stephen was being stoned, he cries, I see the Son of Man standing, standing at the right hand of the Father, indicating that probation. The Israelite nation had finally made their decision. In fact, when you read about the end times in Daniel chapter 12, the very end, Jesus stands up one more time when he's about to come back, meaning... Probation is closed. But for that nation, for that special favor that was bestowed upon Israel, it came to an end. Those end. A.D. 34, exactly on time. And Saul is immediately converted, and the gospel goes out where now? To the Gentiles. Remember what Jesus told the, the, in that parable? He says, I'm going to take this, this vine, I'm going to take this field, I'm going to give it to other vine dressers. And sure enough, because those Israelites, because those Jewish people showed themselves unfaithful, God says, I'm going to now take the gospel to the entire world. Everyone can now become my favorite people. Can you say amen to that? And there you have the end of the 70-week prophecy. It was so precise that all those scholars, all those rabbis knew it, that they said, you're not allowed to read that. They said, you're not allowed to look at this prophecy. We're actually going to curse you if you look at this prophecy because they knew without a shadow of a doubt what it was saying. The book of Daniel is absolutely 100% factual. It is God's message to this world. Can you say amen to this? Seventy weeks were determined for all of Israel. Now you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute. Can an Israelite be saved? Can a Jewish person be saved? Absolutely. But folks, I want you to understand something. The special favor that God had originally bestowed upon Israel was now open to the entire world. Can you say amen to that? And that's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed. You are spiritual Jews. Can you say amen to that? And if you believe in Jesus, you are part of that heavenly lineage. And that's why Jesus told his disciples, hey, don't rejoice because the demons are subject to you. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Can you say amen to that? And that gospel message is open up to the entire world. Poor or rich, black, white, yellow, brown. Can you say amen to that? Amen. You know, it's interesting. One of my friends, he actually walked into this college. It was actually Oakwood College. It's a well-known black college. And he walked up there. And during this message, he says this. There's not going to be black people in heaven. And everyone just, <gasps> And then he says, there's not going to be white people in heaven. Everybody's like, <gasps> He's like, there's not going to be brown people in heaven. Everybody's like, <gasps> 
He's like, there's not going to be yellow people in heaven. Everyone's like, he says, there's only going to be one people covered in the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are spiritual Jews. The gospel is out to every person. Amen? Romans 2, verse 28 through 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly of faith. If you have confidence in the scriptures, if you have confidence in Jesus, guess what? You are a spiritual Jew. You are a heir to the kingdom. Can you say amen to that? An heir to the kingdom. Excuse me. Folks, you can see that Jesus fulfilled Bible prophecy. The Bible predicted he would be baptized on time, and he was baptized on time. The Bible predicted he would die on time, and he died on time. The Bible predicted that the gospel would go out to the entire world, and sure enough, it took place. Folks, Jesus fulfilled Bible prophecy. Can you say amen to that? Do you have confidence in the word of God tonight? Folks, the reason why this is so important to understand, because you will not be ready for the second coming of Jesus if you don't understand the first coming of Jesus. Amen? You won't be ready for when Jesus has come with all his glory and when he comes as a king if you don't first understand how he came as a lamb. Amen? As the lamb of God. John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist looks and he says, Behold the lamb of God which takes away the sins of this world. Behold the Lamb of God. The gospel message goes out to the entire world. You know, when the Bible says in Daniel chapter 9 something very remarkable, it says that the Messiah would be cut off. He would be what? Now that's that Hebrew word karat. That word cut off is also found in the Old Testament, in the books of Deuteronomy, in the books of Leviticus. Whenever there were certain sins that were taking place in the camp, God says that individual would be cut off, he would be cut off, he would be cut And over and over again, God pronounced these penalties to individuals who would continue to press and move beyond the borders of forgiveness. And God says, if you cross that line, you're going to be cut off, so avoid it. But the Bible says that the Messiah was cut off. Why would happen at that cross? Jesus took the penalties that divine judgment, he took it upon himself. Folks, you will never, ever have to die the second death. You will never be annihilated. You know why? Because Jesus was for you. Amen. Jesus went to hell for you because he couldn't be in heaven without you. Amen? Amen. Jesus was cut off, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, from the land of the living. From the land of the living, Jesus was cut off. He took that penalty. You will not be lost if you have confidence in the blood of Jesus. Amen? Jesus was the Son of God. He was who he said he was. And he came at a time, the Bible says, the fullness of time. Jesus stepped in, and he paid the price for you and me. You know, I was reading earlier today about a very interesting story about those tornadoes that were taking place just a couple weeks ago in Idaho, and there was one individual, you guys might have heard of her name, Stephanie. Her name was Stephanie, her last name Decker, Stephanie Decker. And Stephanie Decker, a giant tornado was coming their way. And you know what happened? She took her three kids and ran into the basement. And as this tornado began to come, she wrapped a comfort, comforter around them. She took the comforter and she wrapped it around them. And she held them. And this tornado just broke right through her house. 
And as I was going right through her house, the whole basement was shaking. Everything was falling. Beams and rafters were coming down. Bricks were coming down. And she was just shielding her children during that time. And she was telling them, you're not going to die. You're not going to die, she was telling them. You will not die. And bricks and rafters, one fell on her leg. And her leg began to bleed. And soon it just got dark. And she got up again and was just limping. And shortly after, another tornado came. Another tornado came. You can read about the story. And she wrapped her kids and she says, not again. I am not going to let you guys die. And as long as they were under her protection, they could not die. Rafters fell on her. And she knew that she was going to die. She actually filmed herself saying goodbye to the rest of her family. Her family still hasn't seen that yet. She thought she was going to die at that very moment, but her one, her one motivation was to see that her children were protected. She was going to bear the brunt of that disaster. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, God wrapped his arms around humanity and says, I am not going to let you die. The Bible says he's willing that none should perish. He says, why will you die? Why will you die? God wants to gather you in his arms. And he, he wants to, you to accept that sacrifice. What he did for us 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. And that woman, she ended up losing her legs. She's permanently paralyzed. Folks, Jesus forever will bear those scars. Forever on our behalf. The Messiah. That's why for all of the universe, we're going to sing the song of the Lamb and of the redeemed because of what God has done for me and you. Folks, today, God is calling you to say yes to him. He's calling you to say yes to Jesus. You might be somebody who hasn't opened up your heart to Jesus in a long time. God is calling you today to say, Lord, I want you to be my Savior. You are who you said you are. If that's says you, I want you to raise your hand right now and say, Lord, be my Savior. Make me ready. Let's pray, church family. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the people of God right here, your adopted sons and daughters, Lord. God, thank you so much for 2,000 years ago wrapping your arms around us and for taking our penalty for our sins for being cut off from the land of the living, as says in Isaiah, for us. Lord, you always come on time. And we are here on time, Lord, because you are speaking to us in ways we may never have thought before, God. But you are pleading for us. Jesus, help us to be open as we continue on this prophetic journey. Lord, help us to understand what the future now holds. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.